Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Well, welcome back to part three. And if you've heard part one and part two, I'm sure you're going to want to hear this part. We get into it here. And if you are a feminist, which I consider myself to be, you're going to hear the perspective of a masculinist. And it's very eye-opening and heart-opening. I think you're going to really be interested in this. So stay tuned. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Let's go to another another issue, which is really a big one in the culture at the moment. That's the epidemic of loneliness. And just two days ago, the Surgeon General released a report lamenting the extraordinary extent of loneliness in our culture. And there's some countries which have ministers for loneliness. Mm. You know, so it's not just the U.S. This is something that is growing worldwide, it seems partly a reflection of urbanization, technology, et cetera, lots of factors, but it's something you've thought about a lot. So let's dive into this. And first off, we can we can acknowledge there's this extraordinary extent of loneliness. A lot of males, I forget the exact figure, but something like 40% say they don't have a friend. It's like that. That's extraordinary, yeah. or at least don't have a close friend. Yeah. So the loneliness epidemic appears to be across groups, though men are more impacted, relatively speaking. There's not one cause. It's a meta crisis. It's a wicked problem. You know, it's probably technology has something to do with it, shifting social norms, you know, around work and, you know, people are working from home. For example, rather than in a busy office place, people are moving, you know, farther and farther from family. Sometimes they're propelled there because of their families. And sometimes it's because there's a job or a partner or whatnot. People are getting married less often, something like a 10 to 15% drop in the rate of marriage. More people are single, more men are single than women. So this is, there is this sort of lean in the data that men are more affected, etc. So it seems to be a culture-wide problem. But what I would say is there are component pieces to it that we can take a harder look at. And for those 
who know me know that, you know, I've had a sort of decades long, let's say, uh, at oddsment with feminism as I understand and experience it as someone who grew up after 1970, I would say in particular. You know, some people will say, you well, you must have just had some bad experiences with feminist women or something. And I, I say, well, did you know that I had my first feminist presentation when I was 13 in eighth grade? And then I've had one at every single, literally every single level of education, including professional education since then. And my point there is that I didn't grow up around another ideology of control. I didn't grow up around Christianity in that sense. I didn't grow up around Marxism. I I, I only knew one system that seemed to function that way. And in grad school, I had a feminist teacher who literally refused to let the men talk. She shut down the class and only let women talk. And I'd never seen anything like that, except <laughs> that was seemed to be of a piece. And I want to lay out what I see the problems are on the very big picture. And then what I see it as, as how it's impacting things locally, let's say, for men and women. So this, this portion of the loneliness epidemic, which is about relationships and is often about divorce and is often about men who are older than 45 or very vulnerable to loneliness as well as to suicide. So, you know, feminism started out essentially borrowing a model from the anti-slavery movement. They took that movement and its language and incorporated into their founding document. So if you read the Declaration of Sentiments from Seneca Falls, which is 1848, essentially it is a piece that writes about men's impact on women as rapists, usurpers, and tyrants. Literally that language is in the foundational document. Now, what's important about that document is that is 11 years before Darwin published The Origin of Species. So they didn't really have a secondary explanatory model for how you might get social organization without oppression, without, you know, it seemed men were in charge of everything. And in some ways they were in charge in a cross-cultural way. And so to a certain extent, that's what's called first wave feminism. And I think they can be somewhat forgiven for using that language and setting it up where men are these oppressive demons and women are the unwilling victims because nobody really knew any better how to form it. So they just looked at, you know, movements of liberation and they had the slavery 
the anti-slavery movement, and they patterned after that. Now, 1970 comes along, and they now were into Darwinism, and Desmond Morris wrote his book, The Naked Ape, in 1967. So we're no longer in sort of a mystery as to why human societies form and why sex roles in particular are formed. They're formed for our survival. They conform to our environment. They are literally universal. If no one believes me, I recommend a book by Stephen Goldberg. The original title is the best title. He calls it the inevitability of patriarchy, but it's very tight piece of social science where he essentially lays out why this is a universal form of social organization, literally no exceptions. He goes into the exceptions. So Darwinism was the explanation. Now, the feminists could have reformed their worldview around a Darwinian explanation, but no, they chose not to. They doubled down on the oppression dialogue and worldview and added in some Marxism and, you know, sort of the other thought things of the day. Now, this comes then eventually to to an integral history where in 1995, Ken writes Sex, Apology, Spirituality, and he says, hey, this whole man-oppressed women thing is a lousy social theory, and we should, you know, put the kibosh on that because it it, it might explain some very specific pathological instances, but it doesn't explain the, the larger sweep of history. Only social roles does. So he gets that right. And as far as I can tell, the number of people in Integral paying attention is something slightly north of a goose egg, meaning people did not take up that message and trumpet it. They really let it lie there and didn't discuss it by and large, with the possible exception of letting Warren Farrell talk every once in a while. Now, he then wrote a book called The Eye of Spirit, very good book. He did a a very interesting chapter on feminism where he partly tried to show the diversity of feminism. And but what he didn't emphasize is that despite there's a diversity of feminism across the quadrants, let's say, there is literally no school of feminism that does not subscribe to the oppression model. You you just, there's no feminist in good standing anywhere that I am aware of in the Western world who, who denies the theory of oppression as the causal social theory. So what happens when the only really functioning gender-focused group has 50 years, let's say, from 1970 to 19 to 2020 to say whatever it wants about the opposite sex what is going to happen are you going to get a nice balanced inclusive careful dialogue that respects 
the strengths of men and challenges the weakness of women? Or are you going to get a hot blast of self-entitled narcissism that is unchecked by and large by anybody or anything? Now, it's important to say feminists are a minority of the population, but they are the ones running the show in terms of the gender discourse. And my theory and clinical experience is that what we have now is a situation in which men have been severely beaten down psychosocially. They've been told that they are sexually dangerous, that they are physically abusive, that they are emotionally out of contact with themselves, that they essentially bring almost nothing to a relationship. Women have to do all the work. It's called emotional labor. Women have twice the amount of work of men. Never mind that statistic isn't true. Women earn less than men for the same work, even though that statistic isn't true. It's been an across-the-board assault. So what do we actually see in the outcomes uh, and in the data? Well, OkCupid did this really interesting study where they looked at how attractive women found male profiles and men found women's profiles. Now, they did this on a bell curve, least attractive, most attractive with seven bars. If you look at how men view women, it is a perfect normal curve. There's about 15% of women, give or take, maybe a little less right at the top. It looks like your bell curve. The women's curve has in the top two categories There should be about 30% of men. There are 7%. In the third most attractive category, there's 7%. So it's essentially something like 10% to 15% of men are seen as attractive, period. And the curve is all the way on the left. Almost all the men, 80%, to 90% are in the lowest categories of attraction. Then you get statistics, women initiate divorces at 70 to 80% of the time. Among college-educated women, it sounds like 90% of the time. Now, I'm willing to grant, and I've been the bad partner in a marriage, so I'm sure women divorce men who are subpar partners at certain points, but it is extremely clear that that is almost totally unlikely that it's always the man's fault. And yet nobody is shining the light back on women. And then this gets into the real clinical nitty gritty, where more and more I see relationships with women who are completely entitled, have no work to do on themselves. It's almost like a reversal of the 1950s man, but now it's the women who are, don't seem to do any self-introspection whatsoever. 
It's like we went from expecting too little of men to now we expect men to be like everything. We used to expect women to be like everything. And now we just, because they're women, apparently, we we expect almost nothing of them. And there is a cutting edge of women who is now seeing that this is a problem and that they too have to work on themselves in order for these relationships to work. You can't just blame your husband because of what he hasn't done. Almost everything is a dynamic and there's some shared responsibility. I'm not talking here about some severe abuse or something like that, which is one way talking about quotidian problems in relationships. But there is so little awareness around this topic. And I don't think, I think men are going to have to dig themselves out. But I also think the culture is going to have to try to help. And the therapeutic culture is incredibly at fault for this whole line of bullshit because we have bought it that it's always the man's fault because men are emotionally stunted, et cetera, add the accusations. Now, some people will say, well, we need feminism because of women's rights. And my answer to that is, do we need Christianity at this point to be moral people? No, maybe we did 2000 years ago to be moral. We needed Christians. Maybe 70 years ago, we needed feminists to have women's rights. But you can construct an argument for why women should have the right to abortion, which I definitely think they should, without invoking men's oppression of women. And as a matter of fact, that's more accurate. It's not men at the population level who are primarily responsible for anti-abortion sentiment. The difference is really only about 10%. In other words, it's conservative women and conservative men, religious men and religious women. So it's not a gender battle. It's what Integral would say. It's a worldview battle. So this gender lens that we throw on so many things is becoming increasingly obsolete. And we can take women's rights out of that and come up with new justifications like that a woman has a right to bodily autonomy and to deciding, you know, the fate of her body and the fate of her pregnancy without the interference of the government because, you know, there's either a right to privacy or a right to sovereignty over your body, which the constitution or at least legislation should guarantee no reference to the historical wrongs men have supposedly done to women. So I think as integralists and as therapists, we have a whole lot of cleaning up to do. And if we are able to do that, my speculation is that the relationships between men and women will improve. Boys' self-esteem will improve in healthy ways. 
we have got some underperforming boys, but there's no reason we this should be a mystery. That's what I would say. It's a kind of straight ahead outcome of hearing everything that's bad about men and almost nothing that's good. And even try reading the paper. When someone gets rescued, if it's a man, they rarely say a man rescued somebody. They will say a person rescued somebody. If it's a woman, a woman rescued somebody. So it's in our media. It's in our journalism. It's snuck into everything, which is what happens again when you let an ideology run amok. So I'm willing to die on this hill (laughs) alone, which is to say I don't need anybody to go there with me. But I do think that humans are a species designed for the genders to work together. And that's our optimal zone. And to the extent that we are not and we are at odds, if we continue to make that worse, it's going to exacerbate a lot of the problems, including, and of course, the loneliness problem. Because why would you, you know, if a woman needs a man the way a fish needs a bicycle, why, why have a man in your life? A fish doesn't need a bicycle. A woman doesn't need a man. Imagine if we said that in the opposite. People would lose their fucking minds. <laughs> Men need women like fish need bicycle. You could just imagine the protest. Mark, let's <laughs> let's unpack some of what you've said here because there's so much. And uh, one of the things I've appreciated about you is the way you have addressed psychotherapy in, in your book, for example, both The Monster's Journey and uh, A Guide to Integral Psychotherapy. I appreciate you brought nuance to this. And here we're dealing with a very controversial issue, role between loneliness and role between genders and the uh, the history of oppression, which I think we would all agree is, yes, there has been has been male oppression, and perhaps in some ways, at least in in parts of, in in the West, we're seeing a, a swing of the pendulum in some some ways. Certainly not in places like Saudi Arabia or, or Afghanistan, but in terms of the some of the causes you mentioned, you know, you. Looked to, talked about the interpretation of oppression and the imbalance in between the gen, gender power, etc., in terms of patriarchal assumption, assumptions about patriarch and oppression versus, say, Darwinian evolutionary perspectives. And yet, I assume you would actually include both these and acknowledge that yeah, there has been a has been a history of oppression by males. No, I I actually dissent specifically from that view, what I believe is that generationally, there are trade-offs. So, and what we tend to do is we tend to see the male advantage and the female disadvantage, and we stop our analysis there. And from that angle, oh yes, that looks like oppression. But if you actually look, well, I don't know, was it better to be a male in 1917 or 1945 or better to be a female? Gee, that's an interesting question. Because if you were a male, you were cannon fodder. And, you know, 
tens of millions of people died. Obviously, women died as well. So it wasn't happy times for everybody. But your odds of dying were much more. So this analysis says, what are the advantages that women are gaining from their apparent disadvantages? And the advantages they're gaining are typically safety and protection for the purposes of having the reproductive sphere actually work. I mean, it's it's dumb to send your reproductively aged women into warfare because if you if they are killed, you can't replace that population with men because you but on the other hand, if all but one of your men die in war, that man can impregnate the entire generation. Now, obviously, that's a crude example, but that is the social organization we see almost universally that women are to be sheltered. Now, with that shelter comes less freedoms, particularly outside the home. Now, I would say that's not good in and of itself, but it's socially understandable. And then it puts the risk for protection and providing on men. Now, we've glorified that role, but that role's not that safe. And we know right now, 90% of people who die in the workplace are men. Men are more likely to be the victims of violent crime. Men die literally five years younger than women, largely due to stress-mediated effects. If you look at monk populations with non-populations where they're not that much stress, the gap in lifespan is much smaller. But no one ever thinks about that men die five years younger or six years younger for their privilege of getting to stress themselves out and provide. So this, my critique, is much more fundamental than what people take for granted. My take is you have to look at both sides, advantages and disadvantages. And this is what Warren Farrell has done in his myth of male power. I mean, this is the idea. But what I've found is we're so resistant, we as a lot of people, integrals included. And I think it's because the instinct to protect women filters into this subject as well. The instinct to make them victims and as opposed to co-creators. So in these Islamic societies, except for maybe when it seems like it's a war zone, you know, like the Congo or something like that, I'm I'm not so sure that we've got this oppressive thing. I think we've got protected women and then we've got men who are called upon to do all these other things and I wouldn't want to be either of them, frankly. You know, I mean, what if I happen to be gay in one of these societies as a man? I might get thrown off a building. <laughs> uh so it's not like hunky do or if there's a war, I'm going, whether I like it or not. I mean, you, we could see this now in Russia. 
You know, these men are being conscripted into a war they don't want to fight because they're men. They're not sending, as far as I know, women out there. So it's a very fundamental critique, which is why I say it's really walking to the ledge of (laughs) acceptable discourse. And I find it funny because I know that my opinion is not going to change the world. And I've talked about this for such a long time that I'm aware it how far it is from the typical worldview. But I really believe that it's hard to really look at men and women's lives full picture and say, somebody's got it easier. Maybe this group of very, very powerful men, you know, have it better. There's a study, there's a study, and it's a sturdy study. At one point in history, only one out of 17 men got to even reproduce. One out of 17. If you can imagine that one out of 17 women could reproduce, that would be a scandal of epic proportions. But this was in some society where some small group of men had the power and essentially created a harem for themselves, functionally or otherwise. So is it better to be a man back then? where you don't have that ability at all. You can't experience that basic joy of life. No no comment to the intentionally childless. But yeah, so it's I, I struggle to get that fundamental point across, even at hypothetical. Well, well and uh, as I listen for the theme underlying this, it's You know, there's a plea here for a deeper and more nuanced analysis of the gender balances and the benefits and and disadvantages for each gender. And unfortunately, that kind of nuance gets lost in the culture. It's men bad, women good at this moment. And I mean, again, that's a huge oversimplification, but but the problem is one of oversimplification. And what I hear you wanting is a far more nuanced, penetrating analysis, gender balance, advantages, disadvantages, etc. And a more balanced and kinder perspective between genders and for the other gender. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let, let me, you know, make a comment. This was a lot of stuff. I worked with Fritjof Capra back in the, the late 80s. And I was, you know, it was a new thought. It was it was integral before integral was there. And uh, one of the books I read was Marilyn French's Beyond Power. And that deeply affected me. And I felt really ashamed of some of the ways that men were treating women and took women for granted. And I was really, I was really upset by it. And I was asking the question, well, I'm a man, obviously. Can I be a feminist? You know? And as I understood it, I finally came, yeah, I can be a feminist. I can stand up for women and readdress these wrongs and be respectful and and stop this and then then of course this what you're describing is this manichaean you know vision of of the genders that man all bad women all good and i've often commented my wife as i struggle with these issues that women seem the bad news is women seem to be just as stupid as men in other words they keep electing the same people men elect you know and where if they were all good they would throw us out of power and they'd run things you know, but the but conservative women, blue gender, however you want to say that, they vote the candidates. 
that spout that. And modernist women vote the modernists and progressive postmodern women vote that. So there's really not the separation, which the great hope of women getting the vote that it would completely transform society, you know, and, and they would rectify these wrong because they were smarter than us. Well, that didn't happen. And there, there's a huge problem. 70% of a young black men, young boys in America grow up without a father and 30% in the white cultures. And this is a disaster. You know, uh, what the training is, is like, okay, yes, there's been, there's obviously been historical things, but we've made a lot of progress. But again, just as with racism, you can't legislate racism away. You can't say it's against the law. You can't think like that anymore because that's deeply embedded, but you can't say it's illegal to act in such a way. And I think that we've done a lot to rectify the injustices that were done to women. Now, because of the conservative slant of our country, some of those rights are being taken away. But the question is, what does it mean to be a good woman? What does that mean? And what does it mean to be a good man? And this is this is my little thing that I've struggled with. You know, what does it mean? Because I've, I've taken in this critique of men, and I think a lot of it's justified, and a lot of it's, uh, it's overkill, as you were bringing out. But my idea was the idea of, of a, a new chivalry that women should be seen as a divine expression of God, feminine expression. They should be honored and they should be uh, protected because we've got the big muscles and, you know, that's evolutionary is what we did while they raised the kids. We went out and, you know, brought down the Macedons or whatever we're doing. And if we have that respectful attitude, then a lot of the, you know, the, the violence towards women, the rapes and all this stuff, and we, was, we were trained what it means to be a good and honorable and caring and sensitive at the same time, brave man, we could, we could uh, initiate boys into manhood in a healthy way that considers all these points and tells us how we're supposed to treat women. How do you treat your mother? How do you treat your sisters? How do you treat the, your peers? And how do you treat the woman that you're, you're in love with that you're going to marry? And in the, in the same way, the women kind of have to do their thing. What does it mean? In our time and culture, with given all the, the very fast changes that have happened over the last hundred years in, in relationships between men and women, how do we how do we get away from the Manichaean simplistic view that women are good, men are bad, and women should be listened to and men shouldn't be heard because historically we're just a real drag, and come up with some way that's honorable and that's attractive and that makes it okay for a man to be a man and makes it okay for a woman to be a woman just as it seems to be okay if you're somewhere in between now too. But men and, and, and women that are, you know, on the, the majority of us who are on both sides of these balls, either we're men or women, we feel that there should be a way to, to behave correctly and address the, the injustice of, of the past and become better men, you know, while not renouncing what makes men powerful and strong and, and the, the, the positive uh, masculine virtues. So, I had to throw in my sense. Yeah. So what I would say, and this is the kudos I will give to feminism, is that they've largely freed women from their the necessity of their gender roles. So you can be a woman and not have kids, not get married, do none of what, and and have a career you know, and make that your focus or et cetera. And you are no less a woman 
for doing that than you are for marrying, settle down, having a bunch of kids, being a housewife. You know, in the most positive sense, feminism has done that. What we need is we need a similar liberation of the male role. We can't keep the male role simply as it has been with a new twist, necessarily. Mm -hmm. We need to reimagine it. Now, the tricky thing, and this is the hard part, the male role is the one that keeps the lights on in a very fundamental, practical way. I mean, when I'm driving along the highway at night, I don't see any women out there paving the roads, fixing things. This is men's work. And and likely what it, by choice, is, is what all the data says. The data says we segregate by personality differences and choice. Now, what I think has to happen is we need to liberate the male role so that men can do that role or they can do some other role which we haven't yet imagined or we haven't yet identified that would be parity that would be the on a structural integral developmental level that would be a type of equality as far as i see it and it's possible i've heard this suggested that if the coming with the coming of ai and all these things robots some men may be liberated from the role that they had to do now that's a mixed bag and could go terribly badly but it might also liberate us from work in a certain way so that the male role can be liberated more it is much more often men working 50 hours a week it's just in the stats it's all in there and could we give men a different path or at least a couple of different paths is what i would say but yes the the idea that no one is gifted development and that you have to work for your development to become a mature person, a good person. I mean, we could say people are good at heart, but really people unfold into goodness up from Eden, as Wilbur would say. And women need to do it too. They're not somehow magically gifted with goodness just because. They can be just as selfish, etc., as a man can be. And, you know, if you follow the news, they can occasionally be just as violent as men can be. Now, I just read a story of a woman, you know, drunk driving, killed a wedding party, essentially, who was moseying along the road in a, in a golf cart. Like, women can do that kind of thing. Women can be sexually abusive. You hear that story from schools now very consistently. Women using power and sex like men still do in certain circumstances, but were believed to be the only ones. So that's what I'm looking for. And when I am working with a woman, I'm looking for that level of self-awareness, not, not the depressive, I can't do anything right. I hate myself. I don't love myself. That's a psychological condition. That's not what I want to encourage in anybody. 
but I'm just looking for that light bulb of like, hey, I'm part of the couple here and I'm part of the situation and I'm part of this parenting situation and I have to self-reflect too. And I want my husband to self-reflect, but I don't want just him to self-reflect. I want us both to self-reflect and then come together with empathy. And there is in the in the men's movement, there is a term called the empathy gap. When it happens to a woman, it's terrible. When it happens to a man, there's no empathy to be found, essentially. Yeah. Well, what I found from my education in feminism was a big deal for me, is that it made me want to be a better man. And I changed my ways. I've been more respectful to women. I've I've acknowledged what I took away from there. And I didn't, I beat myself up for a while for being a man, but then I got over that. And men need to be elders. There, there needs to be a few of wise elder men that can can initiate young men. This is how you treat women, you know? This is this is how, you know, down to a sacred level and, and what it means to be a good man. And there has to be an ideal that we can follow. And it's okay to be a good man. It really is. There's no sin there. John, I want to I want to just emphasize or point to something you've said a couple of times very briefly, and that is the the importance and and in the social set situation, the therapeutic benefit of resacralizing our view of each other. And that the traditionally, and here, you know, the value of an integral perspective, which is open to all all perspectives. The value of the historical view of of, uh, of the sacralizing of relation of relationship in general, and relationship between genders. You mentioned the chivalric his historical movement, but there's also been in spiritual practice the idea of a the sacralization of of marriage, particularly in every tradition I can think of. I'm trying to think, do they say, no, not every tradition, but for example, the Jewish tradition of uh, the Christian tradition, so much of a, and, and of course, often misused through a ethnocentric lens or an egocentric lens, but still this idea of sacralizing our relationships in general seems, seems very important. Yeah. I think on the top end, you know, sacralizing is a very good goal. But, you know, we've done a good job, I would say, of telling women, look, the, there are types of behaviors for men that are unacceptable. And as much as you may be attracted to somebody or think you're in love, there are certain no-go zones around abusive language, abusive physicality, possibly substance usage, that you should get out of there. We don't teach men the flags that they should look for in women. And hence, they really walk pretty blindly and need like this kind of retrograde refitting of boundaries of like, look, I can, as a man, I can be a better man, but there's a limit to what I can do if my partner is going to mistreat me. And women's mistreatment isn't always as clear cut. Women are more socially sophisticated in that way. 
And, you know, there's a whole literature on what's called relational aggression, which is a well-established thing, which is the idea that men are more likely to be physically violent, but women are much more likely to be relationally aggressive using ostracism, rumors, shaming, etc. And if you're in a marriage where a woman is using that type of aggression and you don't know what it is, and because no man ever taught you what it was, no woman probably ever taught you what it was, then you are in trouble because you can suffer it for years and still justify kind of prison you're in and never really ask your partner, gee, could you not do that to me? So I, I, what I'm saying is at multiple levels, we need work mm-hmm. <laughs> on this topic. And it would all make my job a lot easier. You know, I've got two active divorces right now in my practice, and both men are being run over like by a Mack truck. And it's all that I can do to try to get them to see, look, you you have to protect yourself, like as a human being, a man, but a human being. This woman is not acting like the angel you thought you married. And if people were coming in with that awareness that, yes, even women can go too far or misbehave in such a way, it would be like, it's like having somebody know that they're probably depressed. It's like, we're already in the conversation as a matter of psychoeducation in the culture. And the reason I beat this drum loudly is because so few people are, so few people are willing to talk about it. It's risky, but you know, I don't know, I could be dead. (laughs) And you know, you got to say, you really got to say your, I had an uncle who protested everything that he cared about and he died young, but he he left it on the field. <laughs> well, you've le- you've left a lot on the field yeah. <laughs> today, Mark. And, and, and kind of to, to close this out, I've asked this several times on the show, as Roger can attest, I've asked these brilliant women that we've had, I was like, what do you want from us? What do you want from me as a man? You know, what do you want from me and my brothers? Please tell me, because I really want to know. Because I want to be a better man. And we should be able to ask women, you know, tell women too, what we want from women is, you know, this. And obviously that's going to depend the answers and the questions, the answers to the questions on what level development we are. But I think we can work this thing out because we're not going to have any more anything without men and women getting together. We know that. So, but it has to be more than biological. It needs to be an honorable way that preserves a positive masculinity and a sacred femininity and as we as we come to a close i just want to point out how much (laughs) much we've covered in our discussion we started with the uh, pervasiveness of psychology and the culture we looked at the difference in therapeutic effectiveness we looked at trans issues uh, hot button issues of trans issues psychedelic therapy and the loneliness issue and and now gender issues. So there's been an enormous amount in this. And 
And Mark, I just want to acknowledge again your your uh, really fine textbook, the uh, Guide to Integral Psychotherapy, and your your book, The Monster's Journey from Dealing with the the Journey from Trauma to Healing and Connection. So. Mark, thank you so much for being such a fountain of information and ideas and uh, brilliant insights and and encouraging us all to look below the, the surface of so many of the cultural conventions, both pro and against various things. So thanks so much. Yeah, Mark. And I also want to invite, you know, the people that are listening to us, the women that are present listening to this, please comment, let us know, you know, what do I need to be a better man? Tell me. I want to know. I'll, I'll listen with an open mind and open heart. And again, Mark, thank you. Uh, this may be the longest podcast that we've yet done, or if it's <laughs> approaching it. Thank you, brother. Really appreciate you, the work that you've done and, and what you shared and your, frankly, courageous share. That's heavy stuff. I, I just want to thank you both. I mean, this was a conversation where you invited me to talk about my work, but we could be flipping this very easily. And we could be talking about both of your works. So that matters to me quite, quite a big deal. And, you know, to have people, as you were saying, John, whether the word is mentorship or simply modeling, how does one grow and continue to grow? I I look at both of you as exemplars of growth without needing to, you know, let's say, be perfect. Uh, We need (laughs) real people. And I view you both as real people doing the real work, which is, you know, the hard work of development and, and sharing what you know with the world, you know, and both of you have in written and, and now in this format and I really enjoy your podcast. I've, <laughs> I've gotten into listening and was listened to multiple. I will continue. So huge thanks on my part. And if something sparks, I would love to do it again on some other issues. Okay. Well, All right. thank you so much. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, John. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.